Hello and welcome to Tea with Mama Cash, because feminist activism works. I'm Zora, the executive director at Mama Cash, and today is an important day. <laughs> I didn't want to give a big reveal. I'll let you know in a minute why today is a big day. I wanted to also share with you that our fabulous co-host, Happy Mwende Kenili, is actually on leave. So she won't be on this podcast, but we've got some great guests who are going to be joining us. And we have some really exciting episodes lined up for the coming months while she's away. So today is September 15th, the International Day of Democracy. I didn't know it was a day, but apparently it's a today. It's a day and today is that day. And we have two amazing guests who will be joining us on the podcast to talk about democracy and feminism and their particular feminist perspectives on this topic. Our first guest is Nandini Archer. Nandini works at Open Democracy's 5050 platform, which is dedicated to issues of gender and sexuality. And she covers stories relating to gender, sexuality, feminism, and social justice. She's also an active member of the feminist direct action group Sisters Uncut in the UK, and previously worked with the International Campaign for Women's Right to Safe Abortion. Nandini, welcome. Hi there, how are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about what is the 5050 platform of Open Democracy? So Open Democracy 5050 is an independent media website which covers issues around gender and sexuality and social justice. Um, I'm the assistant editor there. Um, it's quite a unique space for women and LGBTIQ people. Um, and our main project at the moment is called Tracking the Backlash, which is a kind of special investigative series looking at the backlash to women's and LGBT rights around the world. Um, so, yeah, that's an introduction to us. Great. And so we wanted to talk to you a lot today because of this work that you're doing at Open Democracy on the 5050 platform, the particular Tracking the Backlash project, but also in general. And I was just wondering... You know, when you think about this kind of feminism, democracy, politics, um, given that democracy was used to justify things like European colonialism, the enslavement of millions of people, all kinds of, you know, questionable things, things we would not be okay with, and yet we hold up democracy as a as a good in itself, a public good. What do you what do you think about that when you're working on open democracy and the fifty fifty site in particular? Oh, gosh, yeah, big question. Um, I guess very broadly when it comes to democracy, I think of ruling by the people for the people. Um, and at 5050, we are a feminist platform, an intersectional feminist platform. We are trans-inclusive. Um, and we're thinking about kind of imperialism, neo-imperialism every day and what that means. And so for us, um, the important thing is to listen to diverse voices and platform them, so to hear different perspectives, different races, religions, sexualities, genders, ages, um, and use our kind of in independent media site to platform and hear those perspectives and opinions um, so that women and LGBTIQ people can become who uh, are very like central in the discussions around politics and issues that affect their lives. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about, I don't know, the idea of democracy and 
I don't sometimes when I hear people talking about it it sounds to me like they have a very fixed idea in their mind of what that is and there's a particular way we can get there or practice it so a voting system for example regular elections maybe a free and independent media there are particular elements that people might think about Mm -hmm. when they're thinking about democracy and we know that some of those things aren't always a sufficient be working well things like this where do you see the work that open democracy is doing fitting into that picture yeah i mean i think i think it is tough and i don't think that there's any one set idea of what democracy is um i think for us we do see the kind of um crucial role that media plays within a democracy in terms of just having that kind of critical and independent space um to talk about equal rights um, and these issues. Um, and so we need critical independent media to um, investigate um, movements against our rights. Um, and I'd say for me, that's the kind of key pillars of democracy, equality um, and rights. Okay, thanks. So we're going to take a super short break and then we'll be back to talk a little bit about exactly how you're doing that and making our democracies better. So, Nandini, we were just talking about the 50-50 platform and the amazing space that it's been creating for dialogue on politics, on political issues, making sure voices that perhaps aren't as heard in, in mainstream media are given a platform through your site. Can you say a little bit about um, the particular projects you're working on now that are specifically about democracy? And I'm thinking about the tracking the backlash investigative project in particular yeah so um the aim of the tracking the backlash project it's a kind of it's a uh, investigative journalism project um and we're looking at the backlash to women's and lgbtiq rights um and so we're trying to expose the strategies finances networks and impacts of the backlash so that means looking at ultra conservative movements um and so-called pro-family and pro-traditional values groups um, that have been um, kind of partnering with far-right groups to influence politics, elections, and referenda, and using um, the control of women and LGBT bodies to um, win a political space. Um, so particularly around the European elections recently, we were doing a lot of work on exposing um, these groups and who they are. So, I don't know about you, but for me, that's uh, how to say it's pretty incredible um, as a piece of work to, in a in a very, I I presume a little bit forensic kind of way, look at what's actually happening behind what we think is happening. I I imagine that many people think the information they're receiving, for example, is fair enough, neutral, quote-unquote objective, and when they go to the polls to make their selections on election day or they're reading uh, political party platforms or manifestos or whatever it is, they're, or at least we're, we're made to believe or we're told, instructed to believe, that um, that information is, is, is transparent and open in order for us to make a considered choice. 
in what you've been uncovering, can you share a little bit about, I don't know, what's actually happening? Or can you help us get a bigger, a, a deeper picture about some of the other forces that are at play, some of the avenues people are using to exert influence that we don't even know or we don't even see? Yeah, um, I guess the, the most um, kind of explosive story that we recently published was looking at um, 12 Christian rights groups in the U.S. Um, so these kinds of groups are called Alliance Defending Freedom and Heartbeat International. Um, and we looked at all their financial filings for the last 10 years and found that they had spent $50 million since 2008 in Europe. Um, so we went through hundreds and hundreds of pages of their financial filings. Um, and some of these same groups, the types of groups that have supported campaigns to criminalize homosexuality in Africa, um, support draconian anti-abortion laws in Latin America. And I think what was quite surprising for us is um, we didn't expect this much money to be being spent in Europe. Um, in the past, usually what's been uncovered is their spending in Latin America um, and Asia. But um, I think our research kind of showed that Europe was becoming the newer back battleground for these Christian right groups. Mm -hmm. And I also read something about how the links between um, some, of, some of these, I don't know what to say, groups of people and business. And so hosting parties, for example, that are um, offering drinks from certain companies that you wouldn't have thought had any kind of political view particularly they're just trying to make their money but actually have huge influence on political outcomes did you discover any links like that between for example the corporate world and the political world or media or you know things like this where you where you might not think there are these connections being made but actually people are circling behind the scenes and building up these alliances yeah, um, yes, exactly. Um, one of the things we did in March was we went to this scary event called the World Congress of Families in Italy, in Verona. Um, and it sounds, well, it's seemingly innocent, World Congress of Families, but basically what that is is a space for ultra-conservatives and far-right politicians um, and corporate people, religious people, all different walks of life, um, to meet and talk very explicitly about the, how they're going to roll back women's and LGBT rights. Um, and so that was quite scary. Um, I think one of the things I would say is having a background in more feminist activism and working with human rights organizations rather than journalism, um, I can see the unique role that this kind of a project, this kind of investigative journalism project can play um, because I think working in more feminist activism, we don't want to constantly focus on the anti-rights groups um, and spotlight what they're doing. You want to spend your time, energy, and enthusiasm more on building connections with other people who are on your side. Um, so I think what this project, what works really well about it is coming from a more kind of journalistic an angle um, to expose these um, scary connections. Mm -hmm. And I find what you just said really interesting in terms of where feminist activists are putting their time and energy. Um, 
partly out of out of motivation, right? What's interesting for us, where we where we want to spend our resources, and what also excites us and interests us, compared to where deals are being brokered and where power is being organized, that then acts against us. And I wonder, in in what you're doing, have you seen um, useful organizing by feminist movements that actually we would want to amplify right now or or kind of just showcase the ways that feminists can get organized against this because there's a piece around investigative journalism and open democracy OD and 5050 are are going to I hope continue this project and maybe there's other work to do there that can be complementary there is also work that feminist activists who aren't going to be doing that work could be doing and are doing are you learning about that and how do you see those things working together um, yeah, exactly. So one of one of the um, things that we've been trying to do more and more is um, spotlighting the resistance to the backlash. Um, I think the important thing to say, firstly, is that there is there's obviously a backlash to women's and LGBT rights, but um, part of the reason for that is because we've had so many significant wins in the first place. Um, in some of the feminist groups I've met in in the past, people have said, you know, if you're not... Um, pissing off these um, ultra-conservative groups and maybe you're not doing anything radical enough. So the fact that there is a backlash in the first place means that these um, that there have been significant wins and we should be proud of that. Um, I think at the same time, yeah, there's, there's, I've come across lots of interesting organizing um, having uh, worked on this project. I think when we went to the World Congress of Families in Verona, the most exciting thing was seeing all the young women that had traveled from all over Europe to protest this um, conference. I mean, these conferences have been happening every single year for, I think, 15 years now, and there's never been um, that big a protest on the streets outside. Um, so that was a really big deal. People came from the UK, Switzerland, Germany, Spain, um, and as far as Argentina, um, and Kurdistan, so it was like it was really big. Um, but then we've been not documenting lots of other movements as well. So things like the the women's rights movement in Sudan and how they've been leading the the protests and the revolution there, which is super exciting. Um, and then just in the last week, we've been documenting Pride. Um, that Georgia was set to have their first Pride, um, I think two weeks ago, but it was ultimately cancelled. Um, we had an interesting piece by a Russian lesbian woman living in New York talking about why she was going to join um, the New York City Pride. Um, and then there's also been um, stuff we've been hearing from the UN level. So um, a recent like UN Women report, Women's Report that um, looked at how um, there's this rise of like new families and alternative families and families becoming more and more diverse. So I'd say that women in LGBT movements are finding ways to resist in many different ways, whether it's at the UN level or on the streets. Um, and I think that is definitely very exciting and should be celebrated. Thanks. And I, I actually saw that report too from UN Women. Um, so it's this flagship report that they do, and they do it every two to three years. And I remember when they were thinking about developing this next one and they were talking about doing it on the family and uh, there were a lot of conversations there about um, what makes sense. What does it make sense to do that? What does it mean that the UN is starting to talk about this in this way? 
um, what are the, the dangers or the advantages of just coming to meet people where the controversy is happening. And it's interesting to me to hear you say that this World Congress of Families event has been happening for 15 years and now feminists are showing up to, well, disrupt or voice, uh, voice a different opinion. And my question is, or kind of my thought is, how much or what do we do about taking the conversation to where they're taking it versus reclaiming the conversation back to where we want to be having it? And I'm asking that also because you are, you do, you're involved in activism in the UK with Sisters Uncut. And that also formed slightly as a response, right, to what was happening um, in terms of, of budget cuts um, uh, through so-called austerity measures and things like this and how much of it is a response versus what would you be doing if you were setting the agenda yourself and where you think it needs to go next? Oh, gosh, that is a tough question. <laughs> so um, Maybe don't think of it as a question, but it, it's more something I'm thinking about in terms of like we're just getting this strong narrative about traditional families and, and et cetera. And so we're having to go, of course, this was never a traditional family and look at all the diversity of families that exist and da, 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 da. And it's, for me, it feels a bit like, really? Are we, are we really <laughs> having to have that conversation? So I, yeah. it's more, I'm thinking like that, like, okay, that's great that people are showing up to disrupt that conversation. But part of me is kind of wondering how in the world are we still having that? How is that a conversation? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely, it is really that that side of it is quite sad, and I think um, well for us the important thing is to document these struggles and to make people know about them. So whether it's videoing them or interviewing people, um, finding ways to make sure that we document this resistance so it's not totally gone unnoticed, um, and there's as much emphasis put on that than um, as with the um, kind of far right and ultra conservative groups. Mm -hmm. And so thanks for that. And if I could ask you, if you if there was one thing you wanted people to really take away from what you're trying to do with this platform uh, on 5050, on Open Democracy, with the particular investigation you're doing, one thing that you think, you know, I'd really love to see more of this or people to do that. Do you have an idea about that that you could share? I think one of the things we'd like people to do as they read our content and um, become interested in these kinds of investigations is to, to look at the kind of very local level um, and the spaces that they're living in and moving in um, and think about whether, whether they see any similarities in anti-rights movements or pro-rights movements and, and what's going on. Because I think um, part of what we're really trying to do with our platform is um, change the way um, traditional journalism works as well. So it's kind of looking at investigations from below. So it's looking at the kind of everyday nature of things and documenting and recording um, what's going on. Um, and so, yeah, I think I would encourage everyone to read the stories that we have on our website. And um, we're always there for an open conversation if people want to uh, talk further about um, anti-rights movements, but also any exciting uh, feminist resistance that they've been taking. Great. Thanks so much, Nandini. That, that's a really helpful way to think about this, that it's, it's not always at the grand national, international scale, that actually this stuff is operating also at the level that uh, we can actually find out more 
at our uh, yeah local level. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Tea with Mama Cash. And we speak to you soon. Stay in touch. Thank you. It's time for feminist mishaps because nobody's perfect and we're all human. We all do our best to uphold our feminist beliefs and values, but sometimes we do slip up. Today, we have our Mama Cash's Director of Partnerships and Communications, Amanda Giggler, best name ever. She's emerging from behind the scenes of this podcast to share a feminist mishap of her own. Hey, Zora. Um, And hey, everyone. This is Amanda. Um, So I feel really weird talking about this mishap because we've just been here recording and we're going to continue recording and talking about democracy and feminism and resistance and really important topics. And the only feminist mishap that I could come up with amongst actually kind of the the dozens and hundreds that I I could, but the the kind of the best one is pretty light. The one you're prepared to share on on public radio, right, right, be right. Because some of them actually are too are probably are too big and too bad to to share just yet. So this is my mishap. So it's a dating one, or it's a dating advice one. Um, picture this: I'm in the car with two feminists. I'm sitting in the back seat, so I'm already in this kind of very kind of like childlike oppressed position in the car. Um, these two feminists, um, they are trying to help me with my dating life. This was several years ago. And they're, you know, they're exchanging stories about, you know, about how successful they've been setting up different friends with people um, romantically. And are saying, you know, Amanda, we can really help you out. You know, you can, there are a lot of people out there. We can introduce you. you know, we, can, we, can, we can really get you out of this, like, this horror of singledom. And... Um, I was a little bit uncomfortable, but, you know, I just thought, okay, well, uh, they said, well, you know, what, how, tell us a little bit about what you're looking for. And I said, well, um, I just, I don't go for femme women. I'm just only into butch women. Like there's nothing more attractive than, um, female masculinity. And they pause for a minute. And one of them actually looks back at me from the driver's seat and says, are you interested in a, in your future partner's personality at all? And I, I didn't even have the catchy comeback of, you know, just to make it kind of snarky and sarcastic. I just was so horrified that I had completely objectified um, people, women, um, and I just kind of cowered in shame. We've all been there. We've all done the shame. The move that you're like, did that really just come out of my mouth? Exactly. And listeners, perhaps you've been there as well. Do you have an embarrassing feminist moment of your own? Send us your confessions anonymously if you wish, and we may share it on a future episode. You can reach us on Twitter at MamaCash, or you can email us at ttea at mamacash.org. Welcome back to Tea with Mama Cash. Next up, we're talking about an act we're told makes a huge difference to democracies. Uh, We're told it's at the core of democracy. It's a thing that everyone can do to really participate. And what is that? It's the right to vote and the freedom to vote. And to talk about that with us, we have a very special guest, Gina Lafour, who who comes from Stem Oppenfrau, which means Vote for a Woman, which is a Dutch-based group. And she's going to tell us more about what they do. And because it's Mama Cash and it's Tea with Mama Cash, we're going to be complicating the idea of voting a little bit and exploring what are the what are the best parts of it and what are the limits of it as well. 
Gina, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so Gina, you're a volunteer at Stop Stem Up and Frau, and you also work at Fashion for Good, which is a platform for sustainable fashion innovation. And in the past, you've also been a board member of Amsterdam United, which is an intersectional student platform at the University of Amsterdam. How do you bring all these things together? Oh, wow. Um, I guess my interest has always been pretty broad. Like, um, I, I'm always interested in creating a better world in different ways. Um, and that normally always have been like in social ways. So like the sustainability part is quite new actually in my life. But I think um, it's super important to connect all these different issues together because um, yeah, it is always connected. So yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about STEM Up and Frau in particular? What is Vote for a Woman? Uh, good question. So um, STEM Up and Frau is an initiative um, that tries to um, help women in politics, but besides also create awareness um, for people to um, vote for women because we see uh, underrepresentation of women in politics a severe one, uh, and this is globally, but also specifically in the Netherlands. Um, and um, it's actually also inspired by um, a Surinamese. Um, flyer, I would say. So, Devika, in the fa- the founder of um, um, Stem op een Vrouw, was in Suriname, like in 2016, I believe, on holiday. And then she found a flyer in the museum that said exactly this: like, oh, we we see, um, yeah, a lot of women in our country, but we don't see them represented in politics. And then she got inspired. Um, she was like, oh yeah, that makes sense, and. Uh, in politics, there is a lot of power, so uh, let's do something about it. So in March 2017, they did the first campaign, um, and that has been like uh, what we do ever since. Um, yeah, so I would say that's like one of the key things that we do. So the campaigns, and then um, on the other hand. We do uh, trainings with um, female politicians. Um, yeah, so that's it. And the campaign is basically to get all of us mm-hmm. to choose women candidates that yes. are running for office. How do you respond when people call that strategy, the strategy that you're pursuing, reverse discrimination and say things like they want to vote for the candidate who best fits their politics and not according to gender? Yeah. Um, good question. <laughs> we get that a lot, by the way, and from all kinds of people with all kinds of genders. Um, um, maybe it's good to tell like what our strategy exactly is. So when it comes to the campaign, uh, we actually give the advice to vote for uh, women specifically, and then also for women a little bit lower on the list. So the thing is that that what Devika or in her team also in the beginning found out is like that there are a lot of people that already vote for women but then they vote for like the first women on the list and that's symbolically that's great but it doesn't get like more women in politics um so therefore we say vote for women a bit under um the amount of seats that a party is going to um receive um that we expect them to receive uh, so you can push her a bit up um, so 
um, yeah, the women will be uh, elected eventually. So that's really uh, strategically. And um, what, what surprised me is this reaction. So we know like from in the Netherlands, there's a, a lot of reaction uh, against um, yeah, the what we found out with, with well, not, not found out, but what's already uh, something that we are aware of for a long time, like the claim of Svartipi that it's racist, but like the claim that activists made like some years ago, again, like, oh, this is racism. That sparked like a lot of like, um, yeah, what to say, like hatred, anxiety, all kinds of like really reactive reactions. And I was surprised actually by like, um, the reactions that we got as Stemme Frau, like of people saying, oh, this is reverse discrimination. Um, and also quite actively, uh, I was pretty shocked by it. Um, but um, yeah, so to respond to your, on your question, um, when we get it, um, we always respond in a way of, um, yeah, just explaining it to people. And this is mostly online because our campaigns are no normally like on social media. And um, um, so first thing to say is that all uh, candidates on the list uh, are supposed to be qualified to um, be elected. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the list. And um, we tell people to, you know, if they want to vote for a party, maybe trust that the party um, selects candidates on the list that will be able to do that. So um, the argument of oh yeah, I just want to go for the best one or we just want to vote for quality doesn't really make sense in that case because all candidates must be qualified, otherwise they wouldn't be there. Um, and also that we say the aspect of the women that are in politics, that they are women, is an extra quality because of the better representation. Um, so... Um, I would personally would say all um, yeah, that your experiences shape the way that you view the world. And if you have um, mostly men and also like a very monogamous um, uh, group of politicians in place in uh, diverse other ways, um, yeah, you would want to have more diversity in representation. Um, so therefore, because there is an underrepresentation of women in politics, you want to vote for a woman because that would add something to, um, yeah, a better representation of all of us. Yeah, which is what democracy should do, right? Um, and when I was involved in, in similar campaigns, I, I worked for an organization that uh, was doing something similar in the UK. Mm. One of the things that we looked at was um the the threshold the amount of representation you need to act as a kind of tipping point to tip the culture in the way the government is run hmm. so for instance there's been a, some studies about a kind of 30% goal a 30% target showing that if you can get 30% representation of women into a parliament for example that's uh, a big enough um proportion that then shifts the whole culture to things like in the context I was operating in, it would be, you know, what time do the meetings run until? So this was a big issue that um, because of women's uh, caring responsibilities, the way we've we've set up their responsibilities, they weren't able to participate as much in 
uh, meetings in the evenings, but a lot of parliamentary committees were meeting in the evenings or whatever Mm. it was. Or there were things like, um, you know, there just weren't enough bathrooms in Mm. the halls of parliament and that didn't for for women dedicated for women um or that they were all labeled as delegated for designated for men and so this was a problem for in terms of like you know women spending time looking for bathrooms like wandering halls looking for bathrooms and when you had a big enough demand there were enough women in in the building who needed the loo then that would require that some of those other bathrooms got changed to other things made gender neutral or whatever it was do you Mm. think about things like that like what would actually shift shift the culture for example the culture of debate in in how decisions Mm. get made in in political discourse right if there's different kinds of ways of arguing or different ways of having conversations because there's a different um, there are different kinds of people now in the conversation. Yeah. Do you talk about that at all in terms of what would be a, a target for you? What What's the goal you're trying to achieve? Um, well, the goal uh, is to have more equal representation that at first, but also more um, diverse representation in general. So we um, try to have like an intersectional approach when we uh, call for that equality in representation so um, for example if there would be uh, equally as many men and women in politics uh, we, we wouldn't be done because we know that uh, even more marginalized groups within uh, the group of women like uh, look at uh, Muslim women, uh, like women of color, uh, black women, look at trans women, look at refugee women, like all kinds of women, um, single moms or, you know, uh, sex workers, um, you know that um, the step for them to be be also part of um, that same group of a women that will be elected into politics is even higher, you know. So, um, did that sentence make sense? So the threshold for them to yeah be be in politics. So um, yeah, that that would be the goal, I would say. And um, I think with more representation, um, well, we hope that the rest kind of will follow. So. We hope that with our campaign, we try to create the sort of the public support for parties to have more inclusive uh, policies, uh, not only for the candidates on their list, but also what you say of, of like, you know, the inclusivity in the work itself. And um, um, what what is also proven by, by uh, studies is that female politicians also are um, more eager to um create more policies that are meant for women so um when it comes to the um something like the the bathrooms you're talking about or when it comes to like uh, abortion or whatever they're often and not always but often more the yeah more likely to um, bring up those issues mm-hmm. yeah. so I hope that that answers your question <laughs> yeah a little bit I mean partly my question was um, what would it what is um, whether you're working towards a particular 
proportional representation that would um, facilitate many other things, right? Like what, how many women need to be in in parliament before you can have certain kinds of issues tabled hmm. um, because when it's a lone woman or it's it's a very small number of women yeah they have to adopt um, certain practices that allow them to stay in their seats and yeah, it means true. they don't have as much opportunity to actually advance for example a feminist agenda because they're yeah. immediately targeted oh you're a woman and of course you're bringing up that issue yeah. versus when there's a group and it's cross-party for example so one of the mm. the things I know that the studies show is that if you can get representation of women across parties so it's not mm. just a party or a particular type of party it's actually multi-party when there's women from multiple different parties, they can form cross-party alliances on common issues like violence against women, for instance. Yeah, um, and they can advance policy change in a very different way because it, it's shown to be a cross-party issue and um, no particular women are targeted as, oh, well, you're from that party or you're the woman, so of course you mm. would bring up that issue. So my question was a little bit, how, how uh, do you think about the yeah the ultimate impact on, the, on policy change or new laws or things like that um, around... Yeah, slowly building up a cohort, right? And a, a movement of women in in politics. Yeah, so I think um, what what helps in that case is that we are, like, when it comes to politics, neutral, right? So the campaign is for all parties. So that would help um, to build this movement um, um, across all parties. So you have women in several parties that can um, work together to create that. Um, and I think with the awareness, I think what we do with the campaign is also creating awareness and the support um, for these women to have a feminist agenda. Um, and there's, therefore, we also have these conversations online um, to, to grow that awareness. And when it comes to numbers, yeah, um, if, if my simplified answer would be you want to go for a 50-50 representation. But um, that, that what I said, that's not enough because there's also people that identify differently than female or male. Um, and there are um, also women, um, yeah, with all types of different um, backgrounds. And um, yeah, so... Yeah, me, myself, I'm quite um, ambitious when it comes to that. So, Gina, super exciting that you're with Stem Up and Frau, that you're all working on this, getting us to get more women elected. What can people do if they want more information and they want to help you with your campaign? Um, yeah, um, there's a lot of things that people can do. Um First of all, is of course to vote for a woman uh, with every election because they're multiple. Um, talk, like uh, spread the word, tell people um, how to vote for women, why to vote for women, um, how to vote strategically, right? Because otherwise we just miss a lot of votes. And um, to show solidarity for the women in politics, and that counts for the people that vote. It counts for the people that you know the um, men that are in politics. It, it it counts for everyone, for women as well. Like show solidarity amongst each other, um, for all the the uh, struggles that they deal with. 
um, to become politically active themselves. Uh, because this is something like when we think about political leaders or just politicians in general, the first image that will pop up is not the one of a woman, just because we are like so uh, primed to see men, because that's the image that you normally always see. So I would say um, just, you know, when you have friends around you or whoever that you think, oh, that could be politically active, talk to them or you know, become more aware yourself of what you can do um, as a woman in politics. And there's many ways, like you can become politically active to in a way of becoming member of a party. You can like um, find alternative ways um, to raise your voice and you can literally um, become a politician. Um, so that's something I would say. And of course, um, you can help us because the campaigns are super uh, much on the internet. <laughs> um, so to just spread our message online, we are on um, all platforms on social media almost, I would say. So on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, um, you can find us under the name of Stembo Frau. Um, and besides... Yeah, we have a website that you can follow and there's also more information so like if you want to know like where the research is coming from uh or for example what i said before or why we say exactly what we do um um yeah there's a lot of information there and also that's the place where during every election we'll give information on the female politicians or the women that are in politics because um there's that's I guess the main issue that we tackle is just the lack of information. So just to make it more accessible for people to see like, okay, who can I vote for? Um, yeah, that's, that's basically it. Thanks for listening. You can find Mama Cash on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook or on our website at www.mamacash.org. And you can find Tea with Mama Cash on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you're listening to this right now, if you're hearing these words that I'm saying, we want to hear from you. It would be amazing if you take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll take any thoughts or feelings or free associations you may have. We'd love to hear from you and reviews help Tea with Mama Cash to reach new listeners. You can also always reach us with questions, feedback or ideas on email at tea at mamacash.org. This is your host, Zora Musa, signing off until the next time. This podcast was produced by Amanda Gigler, Mike Mirkovic and Sophia Sewell, our colleagues at Mama Cash. And I want to extend a special thank you to Nandini Archer and Gina Lafour for joining us today.